Thanks for joining us for the podcast of the River Anglican Church. In today's sermon, Jonathan will conclude the series on emotionally healthy discipleship by talking about leading from weakness. So here's Jonathan. Good morning. Let me uh, pray as we get going here. Uh, Father, just thank you for this morning. Lord, we invite your Holy Spirit. I know that we come uh, in a variety of different places with a variety of different um, possibly preoccupations or distractions on our mind or anxieties. And some of us may come this morning with walls and barriers, Lord, towards you this morning. And uh, Lord, we all come needing more of you. So Lord, we ask you to um, enliven your word to take it and to make it what it is, Lord, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, the fire. Lord, burn in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So if I, if I don't know you, my name is Jonathan Tagg, and it's good to see you here this morning. Um, we're now in our 10th and final week of Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. It's been such a powerful series. I've heard uh, from many people in our congregation uh, from people in our spiritual formation groups. I've got a group of my own that meets on Wednesday afternoon. And uh, that's been uh, a great experience and will continue to be because we're running a little behind from the actual sermon series. Staff, clergy, parish council, folks in the congregation. I've just heard a lot of great feedback about this. So I'm, I'm, I'm believing that we're going to be a much healthier, emotionally healthier congregation as we relate to one another. So last week we talked about breaking the power of the past, and we talked specifically about generational sins. We talked about bringing sins from you know previous generations. We talked about negative uh, thoughts and patterns of behaving in our character. We talked about um, the power of defining events in our past, and all that kind of leads to to the need to break the power of our past. If you missed any messages, please go to our website, and you can see them, hear them. But before getting into the topic today, I want to tell you, I'm, ooh, there we are. Okay. I'm super excited about this upcoming series uh, entitled Good and Faithful, based on the, ser- the uh, scripture that says, well done, good and faithful servant. And we're going to look at uh, figures in the Bible, figures in church history, and how they've been good and faithful stewards of what they've been given. We're going to look at their lives and, and encourage us all to remember uh, what we've been given and what our obligations and responsibilities are as stewards of the kingdom. And so today we focus on what it means to lead out of weakness and vulnerability. And when we talk about leading out of weakness and vulnerability, we're looking specifically at what type of leader or influencer we are. And you might say, well, I'm, I'm not a leader, but all of us who influence other people are leading because leading is ultimately influence. So why is this renewed vision for leadership needed? Well, let me tell you that in our world, even in Western Christianity, this type of leading out of weakness and vulnerability, this type of leading is not necessarily valued. It's not necessarily rewarded. Because some of the models that we see in culture, for example, is that the the worldly leader needs to be confident in what they know but is rarely confident in how little they don't know. 
The worldly leader is calculated and self-protected, rarely admitting fault or accepting blame or admitting mistakes or uh, communicating any kind of weakness. The worldly leader doesn't typically connect bad character in the present to their past unless they're doing it to just absolutely salvage their public image, which we've seen. The worldly leader is calculated and utilitarian, willing to cross the line, whether it's lying or cheating or blaming, if that means that they're going to save themselves or contribute to a greater good. And finally, when wielding power, the worldly, the worldly leader will dominate and will uh, intimidate. They'll use anger, threats, manipulation to subdue others. The worldly leader ultimately has a situational ethic that places goals and products over people, especially when people get in the way of progress. And so, in summary, the worldly leader is a very different person than God's leader, who operates in different ways and has different ends in mind. And so, I don't know about you, but it's not very difficult for me to get a picture of worldly leadership when I think about the political scene going on in our country, when I think even about certain uh, leaders in Christian circles. Many of us have worked under them or alongside of them, or at least we uh, have seen them at large. And so what we need is like a fresh portrait of what does a biblical servant leader who leads out of weakness and meekness and vulnerability, what does that person look like? So that's what we're going to talk about today. In terms of some biblical examples, the Bible highlights several individuals who typify this leadership model. And the thing I love about the scriptures is is that it doesn't shy away from the weaknesses and sins of our forerunners. That's one thing to me that validates the authenticity of the Bible. You look at, I mean, almost every character from, you know, Adam and Eve all the way through Cain and Abel and Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the way through. And we see this amazing consistency to kind of say, this is who they really are. They're not superheroes. They're sinners. But two figures I want to focus on are Paul, who wrote one, about a third of the New Testament and planted many of the churches we read about, and Jesus, who, by the way, doesn't need very much introduction. But the passage that was read today, and if you want to turn to it, you can look with me, is Romans 7, beginning at verse 14. And this passage should be an encourage to us, encouragement to us. If you didn't feel kind of normal coming in this morning, maybe this will help you to feel a little bit more normal. Paul first says in verse 14, he says, I was sold as a slave to sin, right? Like in a market, a a, or a, a slave is sold. He said, I was basically sold as a slave, but I was sold not to a master, like a human master, but to sin. And as proof that he's captain captive to sin, he says in verse 15, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, this I do. Isn't that like so many of us? Why is it that I can't seem to forgive this person, even of this small thing that they did when I have my own sins that need to be forgiven? Why is it that I can't stop doing X, you know? 
this thing over and over again, even though I tell myself, don't do it, that is the thing that I do. There's not one of us in this room who's immune from this kind of thought or behavior. But look into verse 18 and 19. He says even further, For I have the desire to do what is good, which many of us do, but I cannot carry it out. I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. I mean, what amazing vulnerability from this super apostle who accomplished so much. Then look ahead to verse 24, and he finally summarizes and says, What a wretched man I am. Because this, this war in us between good and evil, right and wrong, choices we make every day, not just for good, but even choices for evil. And if you and I take a step back, I find it comforting that Paul says, no, this needs to be written. Whether he wrote it himself or dictated it to someone, we don't know. But he said, no, this needs to be included. This bit about who I am, make sure not to leave this out. He influences others out of his own weakness and out of his own vulnerability. And what a great model he is. His words encourage us not to be ashamed of who we are, not to put moral tags, well, this is worse than this, and I'll move this around here, I'll share this, because this is lower hanging fruit, but I can't share this. See, the church should be like the most genuine place in the world, amen? It should be the most honest place in the world. That really struck me when I had a friend who was a regular attender of an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. And he said, he said, you know what? If churches were like AA meetings, I would go to those meetings. You know, it kind of made me sad to think, you know, at least at the time that the church I was attending, I'm not sure I could say you can go to this church. But the second person we do well to consider is Jesus, who provides us with several vignettes of humanity and weakness and vulnerability. One of the most sobering and honest passages was the one that Mary read in in Matthew. Matthew 26, if you want to look with me. And the first thing you might notice is that Jesus didn't want to be alone at Gethsemane. And so he took the disciples, it says, but then it even, he takes Peter, James, and John, the sons of Zebedee, and he takes them farther into this garden. He didn't want to be alone during this excruciating experience. How many of us, when somebody dies, you say, would somebody go with them just to be with that person so that they're not alone? Very human thing to do, to want to be with people you love and that you believe love you during one of the most excruciating times of your life. Matthew records that Jesus began to be sorrowful and troubled. In the Greek, those words mean distressed. He was under distress. He was heavy. Reminded me of that scripture where he said, you know, come to me, you who are heavy. This was his time to be heavy. And going one step further in verse 38, Jesus verbalizes to his companions, He says, I'm overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. So unlike many, he doesn't just keep his emotions and his feelings inside, hidden away from other people. He says, 
I am overwhelmed. Can you imagine hearing this from this man who you've always known to that point to be so strong, opposing the Pharisees, being maligned and misrepresented and mistreated, always such strength, such courage, and he says, I am overwhelmed. What did his voice sound like? Perhaps it broke. Perhaps it cracked. So sad. So grieved was he that literally he was saying, I could die of a broken heart. Our Lord, the creator of everything, the Alpha and the Omega, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, shares with us openly and humbly and meekly that his body would die from the depth of despair of his soul. And in verse 39, we read that he falls with his face to the ground. So literally his body is bearing the weight of what he's going to bear on the cross, and he falls with his weight to the ground. The sheer emotion of what he prays, and it says that he says, my father, my Abba, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Whoops, I just knocked my mic off. Sorry. He returns to the three that he brought to find them. And he returns to find Peter, James, and John not awake, not praying, not concerned, not vigilant. But he returns to find them what? They were sleeping. Sleeping as if they were so disinterested in what he was going through that they couldn't stay awake. And so after rebuking his disciples, which again is another sign of his humanity, when he's like, couldn't you just stay awake? Couldn't you be here with me during this time? Do you know what I'm going through over there? Which I'm sure all of us have felt that emotion when people weren't with us when we needed them. He goes away again and he prays saying the same thing. Father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Again, he returns and he finds them what? Sleeping again. He goes the third time, prays the same thing. Jesus is not just in a battle for himself, friends. He's in a battle for you and and for me. He's wrestling not just so that he can want the Father's will. He's wrestling so that you and I can do the Father's will. And so ultimately, his fight in the garden is our victory. Such good news. Well, there's so much more we can gather from biblical examples. And as I mentioned before, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and Esther, and Ruth, and all of them leading out of weakness and meekness and vulnerability. Judges like Samson and kings like Solomon who had a weakness for the ladies. Remember those guys? Saul and David. One major argument for the Bible's reliability is that it doesn't pretend to make its characters what they're not. And and the benefit of that is that you and I can understand, like they identify with us and I can identify with them. They're not like superheroes and superstars. They're just humans. They're just like me. They're just normal. God desires to redeem and use these weaknesses. And friends, it's not in spite of our weaknesses, which is language that I've used before. It's really not in spite of our weaknesses that God uses us. It's actually through our weaknesses. Isn't that amazing? Do you remember what what our Lord said to Paul? He said, my power 
is made perfect, is made complete, what? In your weakness. Like, that's where my power is most seen, when you are weak. And so, my power is visible in your powerlessness. When you and I are powerless, that's an opportunity for his power. My ability, he would say, is best seen in your inability to do what you need to do, whether it's at school or work or at home, and you don't have the ability to do those things. My help is evident when you're helpless. My sufficiency experienced in your insufficiency. Well, let me say, to make this ever so practical, I want to share a chart that Peter Scazzaro shares in his chapter, and then I have a story that I'm going to close with. And Peter Scazzaro provides a contrast in his chapter of what it means to be weak and vulnerable versus proud and defensive. And I'm sure that we can both identify with with both sides. Me, the latter more than the former. Now, I've adapted this chart a little bit because the book is written kind of with a slant towards church leadership, so I did adapt some of the language, but you'll get the gist. And so, when I'm weak and vulnerable, he says... I allow myself to be real in front of others, sad and frustrated and troubled and angry like Jesus was in the garden. But when I'm proud and defensive, I hide my feelings. It's not okay. When I'm weak and vulnerable, he says, I admit when I'm feeling overwhelmed like Jesus did. But when I'm feeling proud and defensive, I refuse to show weakness. I always model strength and confidence and even optimism, which... Jesus and most of the saints didn't always do. And at times, it's disingenuine. My soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. (laughs) When I'm weak and vulnerable, I ask for help. And I ask for the prayers of other people. But when I'm proud and defensive, and we've probably all been there, I don't ask for help. And, you know, I'll be there for you. I'll do anything you want But I don't ask others to be there for me. Friends, that is not humility, that's pride. When I'm weak and vulnerable, I pray in utter dependence to surrender my will to God's will. I realize that my desires may not fit God's plan. But when I'm proud and defensive, I pray as if my desires, my goals, my agenda are God's will. And when things don't go my way, it's either because there's spiritual warfare or because I just need to get more of God's blessings. You know, I just need to pray or manipulate or somehow get God to bless what I'm doing. And finally, when I'm weak and vulnerable, I have no problem being honest. When I struggle to submit myself to the will of God, when I come to people and say, you know, I'm really wrestling to want what God wants. Have you ever had that feeling before? like in the garden. And, by the way, to submit to authority, to submit to a boss or a pastor or a parent that you know you need to submit to. But when I'm proud and defensive, I hide from God. When I'm confused, when I don't know, or when I don't want to do to follow God's will, I just say I'm not even going to deal with God about it. And I do the same thing with authority. Because to admit confusion or a lack of desire to submit to God or to submit to other people 
something that's inadmissible. I just can't say that it happens. Friends, I think there's some really healthy things about coming to God and say, God, I, I want to want your will, but I don't want your will right now. To come to a person and say, I want to be a good employee. I want to be a good person in your congregation. I want to be a help and serve, but I struggle to want that. What an honest conversation that would be. Well, I want to end with a story of how I've seen this in my own life. And as I mentioned, you know, I've been that, at times, that proud and defensive leader. Um, But there was also a season where I served under somebody that was that proud and defensive leader. And so I don't share this story in any way to say that I'm superior, but just that I wanted to relay what it's like to be in a situation where you feel helpless and where you're experiencing what it's like to be under someone who doesn't communicate weakness or expose vulnerability. So it was really, really early, and I've served, like, if in case you're worried about it, I've served at, like, 15 churches, you know, so you don't have to worry, like, being able to spot check who this person is. But I came on staff of a church, and I began to notice some concerning trends on this staff. People would be put down or put in their place in public. And it was subtle, but there emerged, even within the first year, kind of a a palpable shame culture. You know, a lot of people would be laughing at a joke, but there'd be one person that wasn't laughing. Have you ever been in that kind of situation? And the, the pastor had a really strong sports background, a very highly competitive background. And so that kind of competitive uh, spirit kind of came into play on this church staff. It was the toughest and the strongest and the shrewdest that survived, but the weakest became very obvious, and they didn't survive. What I realized over time was that no one could offer any kind of criticism or propose changes or raise alarm. Unless Unless from time to time somebody would come in and they'd have the money or the influence you know what I mean? They're like, oh, we, you know. But rarely was it the systemic things. It was like, oh, we better, you know, make sure to get that pew fixed or whatever. But it wasn't like like systemic relational problems and changes. Well, the second and third years got a lot worse. And the jokes turned from other people to me and Robin. And some somewhere, somehow, I realized there had been a shift. Somehow, at one point, we were in. We were We mattered. And now we were out. And the invitations to get together socially stopped. And when I was in the room, kind of the tone of the room changed or conversations ended with the leadership. Smiles turned to, oh, hi, you know, how are you, Jonathan? Good to see you. And jokes became ridicule and teasing became defamation. And all the while, the real issues of what was happening in the relationships and all the things that needed to be resolved in terms of conflict, never got discussed in a mature or loving way. What well, all reached ahead when I evidently did the worst thing that a person could do. I publicly with a leadership team said, I think I'm pretty soon I'm not going to be here any longer. I became the whistleblower. Because me leaving, of course, was going to stir 
questions in the congregation. Why is this person leaving? And no longer was I simply threatening to expose the dysfunctional nature of the pastor or the leadership of the church. I was abandoning the team from a sports mentality. I was, you know, mutinizing the coach. From that point on, I thought that maybe that would change some things, but but it didn't. And there were no one-on-one meetings. There was no one pursuing me and asking what could change. And three months later, I had the same conversation with the leadership team. Just again, like here's a shot across the bow of the ship. Like we can't stay in an environment like this. Nothing changed. And I remember my final phone call to the pastor. And I called and I said, look, I just want one thing in this phone call, because it had been a horrible week and a horrible day in terms of conflict and all that kind of stuff. And I said, I want one thing. Would you please admit that there's something very broken about our relationship? Would you please admit that there's something wrong with how you and I relate? That's the only thing I need. And I'll never forget, there was a long pause. And afterwards, I could almost envision the glaze over his eyes. He said, we're good. We're good. And I just said, I'm done. I'm done here. I love you and I love this church, but I'm so done. So the next day we, we resigned. We tucked our tails. We didn't say anything to anyone of why we were leaving because it was such a, a fragile situation that we didn't want to kind of stir everything up. And we left. Well, it was years later that I went back to visit friends. I even went to the church service. And evidently within those four years, three years, I guess, that I was gone, that there had been four staff that came and went, came and went, came and went. And though we had not told people why we left, many of our friends had left, and they told us, this is why we left. And what would they say but... An unhealthy culture had been exposed, one that was, you know, denigrating and where there wasn't listening or addressing changes or problems and so forth. And I left that conversation, that lunch, with my stomach sick that that had never, even over those years that I'd been gone, been changed. And it drastically impacted the work of the kingdom. Just to say that a year later, it The problems even went beyond the local church to the denomination. The pastor was so isolated, he had so isolated himself from others, even in the denomination, that the leaders of that denomination voted to disbar him, essentially, or to to remove him. At that point, the church was was 25% of the size of when I was there. And still, even with the censure of the denomination, the the pastor never admitted fault, never left the church. So the church, so the denomination closed the church. Now, as you may sense, this is not a feel-good story. It really doesn't have a redemptive ending. And it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy because it's it's what happens when, when people lead out of, not of transparency and vulnerability, but out of opaqueness, and out of hiddenness. 
It's a story about how it takes many people to get a church plant like this going, but only a few people who lead the wrong way to tear it down. And so this is where I'll close. I realize, yeah, that's that was a long story, but it's important. It's important that you and I see the impact and the consequences of how we lead, of what type of of what type of influencer we are. And this isn't just in organizations or in businesses or in churches. This is in our families and in our homes. If we will lead out of vulnerability and out of weakness and meekness and humility or out of pride and defensiveness. Families where weakness and brokenness, you may come this morning and find that, you know, you've been raised in a family that doesn't lead in that kind of weak and vulnerable way. You've been raised in a family that leads in a very kind of defensive and prideful way. You may be in a situation like that today where you feel helpless to change, whether it's a marriage or whether it's a a family system or whether it's at work. There's a lot of different places or church. And the bad news is that these situations exist. The bad news is that we find ourselves stuck in these situations. But the good news is this, that God loves you in the middle of these situations, that he even loves you in the ways that you've reacted poorly when you're in these situations, that he, that even when you've made the wrong choice like Paul and said, I didn't want to do this, I didn't want to react this way, but I did, that God still loves you and that he's committed to you, and that God can change you, and he can change other people, and he can even change these situations that we're in. I thank God for EHD and just some of the changes that I'm seeing happening in myself and in our parish council and our staff and in our clergy, because there's no place that's not, you know, that's completely functional. The other thing that's really cool about the gospel is that the gospel is not that this situation will change but that you can change. The gospel is not that this situation that you're in, perhaps it's at work or whatever, and that that's going to change. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that that Christ can change you for his glory and for his good. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the gospel the gospel that you loved us so much that you fought hard for us and so that we can overcome even that we don't want to do your will, that we can want to do your will because of your victory in the garden. We thank you, Lord, for this series as we end it, Lord, and We pray that the work would continue of being humble, not being defensive, pursuing reconciliation with one another, pursuing good and healthy, mature, godly relationships, of stopping and doing a timeout when a person is is not okay on our team or in our family, of operating in healthy ways, Lord, we thank you for what you are going to continue to do. But most of all, Jesus, we thank you for your unwavering commitment to us. 
we thank you that all things are possible. We pray this, pray this in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you please kneel if you are able as we go to prayer. Thanks for joining us for this sermon from the River Anglican Church. You can find us on the web at theriverinrv.org, also on Facebook, and you can join us in person if you like on Sunday mornings at 915 at 110 Roanoke Street East, Blacksburg, Virginia, 24060. We hope to see you again next week.